you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. I'm going to be re- uh, reading verses 13 through 21. A very uh, familiar parable, if you've studied the Bible much. Uh, Jesus had a lot to say about possessions and about money. In fact, Luke's Gospel is particularly angled to helping us understand the very concrete, the very practical aspect of Christian stewardship and following Jesus. And I want to read from this uh, passage from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And I invite you, if you're able, to stand as I read God's word aloud. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Is there a connection between our wallets and our hearts? Is there a connection between our wallets and our hearts? I think there is. There's a connection between our money and what we claim as we follow Jesus Christ about how he is Lord of our lives. Jesus believed there was a relationship too because uh, a man came to him and said, I want you to settle this this family squabble about inheritance. And Jesus said, I'm not judge over you in those particular matters. However, he warned about greed. And the greed warning, all kinds of greed, is a good warning for all of us in every generation. We have to constantly be monitoring and protecting ourselves. Greed seeps in like a cold north wind coming in around the the windowsills in our home. Uh, We don't realize it's happening, but it it just sort of sneaks in. And that's the way greed works in all of our lives. And Jesus made the announcement that our life does not consist of our possessions. Now, we say we believe that, We say there is more to life than what we own, but listen to the language we use. We will ask a question like, what do you think she is worth? Or, I heard he was worth $2 million. You notice how we talk about worth as we talk about possessions and money? We say that life is made up of more than things But when we start talking about worth, we get tangled up in the world's uh, values and the world's perspective. And so 
Jesus told this marvelous parable, not very long, but so pointed, and so many different angles and dimensions. He said there was this farmer. He owned land in Palestine in the first century, so he was already rich, a man of means, and he had a bumper crop, and he just absolutely didn't know what he was going to do with this bumper crop. And the first mistake that the man made, that the farmer made, is that he started consulting with himself instead of consulting with God. Scripture says, the land produced abundantly and the man thought to himself. Do you ever do that? Do you ever consult with yourself about your financial stewardship rather than consulting with God? One of the reasons that we encouraged everyone for this Budget Catch-Up Sunday to pray about your particular part is because that's a spiritual matter and God can direct us. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to be asking people, all of us, to make a, uh, an estimate commitment of our stewardship for the year 2020 as our church plans our budget goals. Uh, and, and that's something to pray about because just consulting with ourselves, it never gets very far, but to pray and ask God. The man did not do that. He, did, he just consulted with himself. And the way he consulted with himself borders on the comical. In fact, Jesus may have had his tongue in his cheek as he told this story. I want you to listen to the number of personal pronouns that this man used in this little soliloquy as he consulted with himself. Listen to this. What should I do? I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns, I will store my grain and my goods, I will say to my soul. It's very telling, isn't it? Everything is wrapped up in himself. And the excessive use of personal pronouns coming through in every language, 11 times a personal pronoun is used in a very brief section of Scripture. And that's what happens to us. Well, the story takes a turn, a dramatic turn, in verse 19, or rather verse 20, but God said to him, but God. Usually when we hear the words, but God, there is a dramatic turn in the story. But God says to him. Now see, up to this point, the rich farmer's been in control. I mean, we like that, don't we? That's part of what financial security is all about, to be in control, not to be a victim of circumstances. That's a survival instinct. That's okay. But we really like being in control. Up to this point, this man's been in control, but he's not in control anymore. But God says to him, this night your soul is required of you. Uh, one of the Bible commentaries I read said, all, this farmer's, uh, all of this farmer's neighbors called him smart. God called him a fool. The neighbors said, wow, what a success. Wow, what a guy. But God calls him a fool. And you know why God called him a fool? Because the man made the false assumption that if he had lots of things, he automatically had lots of time. You ever think about that? He assumed that if he had lots of money, he had lots of days. 
lots of hours, lots of months, lots of years. But that was a faulty assumption. To live with an awareness of the brevity of life, I mean, that's a tough thing to do, isn't it? To, to program ourselves to plan as if we're going to live forever, but to know that life is so brief. I heard about a preacher who was trying desperately as he was speaking to the, the young people in his church, the, the teenagers in his church, to get them to understand that life isn't going to go on forever the way it is, that we're all mortal and it really goes fast. And in his exasperation in the, in the sermon to these young people, he said, don't you all understand that one of these days you're going to die and when we leave the cemetery, we're going to come back to church and have potato salad. He just wanted them to understand life goes on. After you die, there's potato salad. After you die, life keeps moving and none of us is indispensable. The world will keep spinning. Several years ago, Dr. David May come and, uh, came to church and led us in a Bible study in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, you may remember that he did a section on the parables and, and a particular... Uh, particularly interesting section on this particular parable, reminding us that you can turn a parable uh, a lot of different ways and it has different shimmering meaning, sort of like a diamond that is turned different directions and the, and the light hits it at different angles. And depending on where you are in your life and what the culture and context is, we see the, 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 the parable differently. And he reminded us that that phrase... This very night your life is being demanded of you. This next phrase, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's one translation, but a more accurate translation from the Greek goes like this. They are requiring from you this night your soul. These things, they are requiring from you this night your soul. And the, the, the question is, as Dr. May pointed out, what is the they? They are requiring of you this night your soul. And, and one particular angle on this parable is that what's, what the they is are our things, our possessions. That we can live so much for accumulating of things and 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 possessions and money that pretty soon they become our master. The more we have, the more energy and time and money we spend protecting what we have, we become consumed with it. They are requiring our soul of us. In other words, there's something very corrosive in the soul that happens when we live only for money. There's something very very exhausting that happens to the soul where there's a weariness that sets in when we live only for the accumulation of bigger barns. They, these things, require us to be, to let them be master. And by the way, that interpretation has a lot of merit because the very next section of Scripture, beginning, beginning in verse 22, Jesus talks about worry and anxiety and being preoccupied with what we wear and how we look and 
the, the presentation we make to others. Just read it when you get home today and think about it. Bill Leslie once made an interesting observation about the questions the Bible asks us about our money. And, and I found these so helpful, particularly regarding this parable. The Bible's questions about our money, first of all, how did we get it? Was it through exploitation? Was it through dishonesty? Or was it through honorable work and honorable investment and a faithfulness? Secondly, what are we doing with it? Are we using it for personal luxury, for personal uh, appearances, or are we helping those in need and making a difference in our world with justice? But the third question is to the point of, I think, this parable even more than the first two. That is, what is our money doing to us? How is it changing us? How might it be interfering with our following of Jesus? How might it be getting in the way of our love for the Lord and love for others? Is it making us numb? Is it turning us into uh, someone we don't want to be? What is it doing to us? Valid questions. Jesus sort of summarizes this whole story in verse 21, and he says, And so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, treasures for themselves, and are not rich toward God. Sitting Bull was probably the most famous Native American in all of the American West. He was the chief over uh, many tribes and greatly respected, and for many times, uh, for, for a long time, a very formidable enemy of the white man uh, as the whites advanced west. But toward the end of his career, Sitting Bull uh, became acclimated to white culture, and he actually became a part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh, he traveled with them, put on the shows with them, appeared with them. And after living on the East Coast for a while, among civilized people, uh, Sitting Bull was startled at the unmindful way that the white culture treated its poor and its disadvantaged. He was shocked at the neglect of those in need. And Sitting Bull once said these words, the white man knows how to make everything, but he does not know how to share it. The white man knows how to make everything, but he does not know how to share it. It's the parable all over again. At the end of the day, this parable, I think, is asking a question and inviting us to consider it. And here it is. Isn't there something more than accumulating stuff? Isn't there something more to our lives than just things? And 
the parable is inviting us to attach our lives to the things that last, to attach our giving, our money, our stewardship to things that are permanent. And that actually spills over into our evangelism, how we share our faith. Because you see, I think we have a message, a very important message for the very secular, very well-off, very educated people of our community. People that would be, by the world standards, considered successes. And that message is, isn't there more? Is this really enough to feed your empty soul? Don't you need Jesus Christ? Don't you need God in your life? to help all of this come alive with meaning and purpose and beauty. I think in the final analysis, the biggest problem the rich farmer had was that he lacked imagination. He could not imagine doing anything else with his riches than just building more of what he already had. He had no imagination for feeding the hungry or helping the poor or doing creative things with his wealth. He just did not have the imagination. And this morning I'm asking us, First Baptist family, with the Holy Spirit's help, do we have a holy imagination to picture the difference that our giving makes, our generosity makes for the kingdom of God? I want to show you some pictures. Here's the first one. To think about the ways that our faithful giving and the sharing of our wealth impacts children, faith formation, hearing the gospel, building a Christian community and helping them learn to trust God. Here's the next picture. Imagining with our giving and investment in young people, a youth group that runs 80 people on Wednesday nights, a youth group that, that does mission, that isn't just how to build the biggest ice cream Sunday and have the most fun, but to really learn about Jesus. Here's another picture. The imagination to use our money to impact the homelessness in our community, not just by giving them a handout, but through homeless, Project Homeless Connect, connecting them to resources so that they can stand on their own and be, have agency of their own life to do good and to, to make, take their place in society. And the next picture, of course, you would recognize lots of pictures from last Mission JC as we use financial resources and human resources to move all over the city with hundreds of projects, making a difference, impacting lives, living the gospel, making our community different for Christ. And the next picture, because of our giving, we're able to have fruitful partnerships here in the States and all over the world, and Kenya is just one of them as we touch children's lives and let them know of Christ's love, and empower them to grow up to be adults and make a difference. And then finally, this picture, 
Ultimately, it's all about evangelism. It's all about winning people to Christ. It's all about seeing them baptized and growing in Christ, spiritual formation. And all of that is possible because we have the imagination to say, in my giving, God is able to take that and make it something spiritual, touch lives with it. So that what we begin to say is, I'm not interested in seeing if we can build bigger barns. I'm interested in seeing what love can do. See, that's what our giving does. It helps us imagine what love can do as Christ uses us and our things to touch people. Let's bow our heads together. I want us to pray for a moment and just thank God for all he's blessed us with. I want us to pray for a moment and ask the Lord about our stuff and about being free or freer from their control. If you're here this morning and you've not ever trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is our ultimate invitation that you come and uh, we'll be here at the front during our response time if you're ready to turn from that life that has shut him out. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And to open your heart and by faith trust him. Receive him. Com commit your life to him. Maybe you're here and church membership is the decision that you want to make publicly this morning and we're here at the front to receive you, but right where you stand this morning, would you just, right where you are, just allow the Lord the freedom to sort of rummage around in, in our hearts and just have his way with each of us. Lord, thank you for your love that never lets us go. Thank you that in surrendering, we gain so much. Teach us more every day about surrendering everything and finding true freedom. Through Christ we pray. Amen.